Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's program where my special guest is unbroken athlete and war hero Louis Zamberini, who passed away at the age of 97 in L.A. from pneumonia on July the 2nd, 2014. I've decided to repeat this fascinating interview conducted some time back at his then Hollywood Hills home when I learned that part of the 405 freeway in L.A. could soon be named in his memory. I began by asking Lewis how old he was at the time. Well, I'll be 94 next month. So you're just a kid still, eh? Yeah, I'm still growing. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lewis, you have the most amazing story, but let's start at the beginning. Um, where were you born, and when did you move to California? Well, I was born in Orlean, New York, and my brother and I both had double pneumonia. And the doctor said, you've got to get your kids to California immediately or they're going to die. So the next morning we were on a train and uh, came to Long Beach, and that's where we settled, first of all. And then from there to the city of Torrance, mm-hmm. and that's been my hometown ever since. And uh, then uh, I got in a lot of trouble in Torrance. I was a, a hardcore juvenile delinquent. Oh, dear. And police were chasing me all over town, and they knew where to find me. They'd come park in front of my house. And finally, my brother got fed up with it. He was older than I was by two years. And the principal of the school, uh, but the chief did something smart. He took me to the jail. <laughs> and he said, you see those two guys locked behind the bar? And I said, yeah. He says, they have lost the most precious thing in their life, freedom. Hmm. That got me to thinking. And my brother said, well, maybe we can get him out for some sport. And the chief said, well, after chasing them all over town for several years, he ought to be in shape for running, so how about running? Yeah. So then I became a runner. Oh, wow. Now, were you a long-distance runner or a short-distance or what? Well, I ran the, uh, I was, uh, my, my specialty was a mile, mm-hmm. um, but I was too young to make the Olympic team, but by switching to a 5,000 meter, which is three miles and 188 yards, I made it, I made the Olympic team on, on, on the 5,000. Then I came back and, and, and went to my specialty, the mile, and got the National Collegiate Record, the IC4 record, and I don't know. Wow. Now, I understand you took part in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Did you actually meet Hitler? Yeah, well, what happened was I, I, I crossed in the ocean on a boat. Now, this is during the Depression. I'd never eaten in a restaurant and then taken from... New York, put aboard a ship. I had no idea what they did aboard the ship, but they feed you and feed you and feed you. And so I got my gold medal by eating, and I gained 14 pounds. <laughs> when I got to the village, uh, this fantastic village the Germans had uh, prepared, not just for the Olympics, but for officers training later, they had a cuisine for every nation in the world. Yeah. And I had to try them all. <laughs> well, I trained hard, but I couldn't lose the weight, so I couldn't keep up the pace. And uh, But the last lap, even though I was exhausted, my brother used to say, remember the last lap, everybody's tired. But isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? So I just opened up, sprinted the whole last lap, and made headlines, 
a blistering 56 seconds, huh. and that was unheard of. And then when I got up in the stands with my American uh, athletes, <clears throat> they, I think it was Goring or the skinny one, Goring or Goring, I forget which one. Yeah. Uh, he said, Hitler wants to meet you. I said, well, I didn't win a gold. He said, no, he wants to meet you anyway. Wow. So I've known to meet him, and all he said was, the boy with the fast finish. That huh. was it, so... So you, did you actually shake hands with them? What's that? Did you shake hands with Hitler? Oh, yeah, I shook hands with him, a very flimsy handshake. And, yeah. uh, but uh, and we looked at him like, uh, I don't know, a, a dangerous comedian. Yeah, you didn't realize how well, serious it was going to be. He had some humorous movements, pounding his knee and stomping his foot, you know, and that yeah. mustache. <laughs> I thought, well, if he came to Hollywood, he'd put... Uh, Laurel and Hardy out of business. <laughs> now, moving forward, Hitler had this unbelievable uh, effect on the world, and um, uh, also uh, Japan the same. Uh, you you eventually went into the uh, the military. Tell us about that. Well, uh, that was not my Olympics, but I made it. Then my Olympics would have been 1940. I'd have been the right age, and I had just broken the national collegiate record in the mile. And uh, I was all primed for the 40 Olympics in Tokyo. And, of course, they were canceled. Mm. And that was hard to take after, you know, working four years on one race. And the Olympians took it pretty hard until Pearl Harbor. When Pearl Harbor was hit, we forgot about being athletes. Everybody, everybody wanted to get in and get it over with as soon as possible. Mm. So you had a lot of volunteers. You didn't have to draft them. Yeah. And uh, went to war. Now, what happened? Uh, I understand you were a bombardier, and the plane crashed. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, we were assigned to B-24, which was what we called a flying coffin. <laughs> yeah. We were at the freight of Washington waiting for our plane to come in. Everybody was praying for a B-17. Yeah. And here comes in a flock of B-24s, and our hearts dropped. And, of course, when you read her book, uh, it talks about how many. We lost more in training than combat. Huh. And... Uh, so then we were assigned a crew, our B-24, and we flew to Hawaii, based at North Shore, Kahuku Air Base. And our first mission was uh, at Wake Island. The Japanese took it from the Marines, and so we were the first to hit it. We had to fly to Midway, and the only bomber in the world that could fly round trip from Midway to Wake and back was the B-24 with Bombay tanks. Mm-hmm. And we, but we had, uh, as a bombardier, I had the most sophisticated weapon of World War II, the Norden bombsite, which cost about eight or ten thousand dollars. And that bombsite had to be locked up every after every mission. I had to have an escort with a rifle, and I carried a pistol to protect the site. But when we went to Wake, they gave us a ninety-eight cent site, oh. a little pen, and we held our hammer to we're going to dive bomb from eight thousand feet to two thousand feet. And that was too much for the plane. As we pulled out of the deep dive, the Bombay tank slipped. Ah. We couldn't close the Bombay door, so we ran short on fuel coming back to Midway. And we had all four motors quit before we got to our bunker. Oh, boy. But we flattened the island and set it on fire. And then the next mission was uh, the Marshall and Gilbert Islands, Tarawa and Macon. And then the big mission was out of Ellis Islands, uh, a place called Funafuti, just north of Australia. And we were to bomb the famous phosphate island, Nauru. Uh, the Japanese, of course, this was the greatest deposit of phosphate in the world. They needed phosphate for fertilizer plus bombs. 
Mm-hmm. And so we had to go in there with 26 bombers and flatten it out. And we were the lead flight. And uh, so when I got in there, I hit my targets. And then I had an alternate bomb, so I picked out a shack, which I thought was a radio shack. Mm-hmm. But it turned out to be their fuel supply. And a, a cloud of smoke went in the air about our height, 8,000 wow. 8, feet. That was on the front page of, uh, of Life magazine. And uh, as a result of that, nine zeros took off. And uh, out of nine zeros and 26 bombers, three zeros attacked us and wouldn't let us go because they somehow, I guess they knew that we blew up their fuel supply. So we had a running battle for about seven or eight minutes. Uh, we shot down all three zeros, but not before taking on 600 bullet holes, five cannon holes, oh. right tail shot off, tire shot off. And uh, one man dead. Yeah. Uh, it was it was brutal, and we didn't know if we could get back to Funafuti. It's huh. a long flight, and uh, they had a submarine uh, 20 miles off shore in case we had to land. They'd pick us up, but we were beyond that now, so we couldn't turn back. So we crippled into Funafuti, made a crash landing, and uh, our plane was totaled, huh. and uh, we lost our crew. So we had to be reassigned a new crew back in Hawaii. And then uh, the we had uh, two days off because we just finished a mission. But the operations officer said, "Well, I just got word that a B-25 has crashed uh, 200 miles north of the island of Palmyra, and we want you to go look for him." Well, we were all dialed up for Honolulu, but we had to go. Yeah. Uh, but we said our plane is be- well. Don't worry about that. We have the Green Hornet. Well, this was a, a scavenger plane. I mean, they used to cannibalized parts from it for other planes because it wouldn't fly. Oh, it couldn't get off the ground with a bomb load. But they said it passed inspection, so we took it. We're flying low, about 800 feet, looking for the Lost B-25, and we had a motor quit, oh, and the plane started to stagger, started to drop slowly, and then the second motor quit, and we just heeled over, hit nose down, and the plane exploded, oh. and uh, out of 11... Uh, uh, the pilot and tail gunner were throwing free of the wreckage. I was trapped inside under the tripod of the machine gun mount. Now, I had a life raft in my arms. Mm-hmm. I got down low to, 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 to take the blow, and I ended up under the tripod with the life raft under my belly. Huh. My shoulders wedged tightly against the tripod, so I couldn't move. Yeah. And then on top of that, the tail snapped off, and all the wires go within an inch and a half of the tripod and they curled around that so here I am in a hopeless situation without all this wire and now with the wire around me this is it, I mm-hmm. thought I'm dead huh. so I started to sink deeper and deeper my ears popped, then I felt like somebody hit me in the head with a sledgehammer so I knew I was down pretty deep and then I lost consciousness and this is crazy and as I'm still sinking now if the wire pressure had knocked me out I'm still sinking, Yeah. why wouldn't I stay out instead I become uh, awakened and freed, completely freed. But I had a kind of a, a feeling of comfort and euphoria for about two or three seconds. I thought, mm. well, this is the afterlife. Mm. And then suddenly I found myself gasping for air, and I realized that I, I was alive and I was free and loosened. Mm. In the darkness, I kept scrambling around with my hand trying to find a way out of the uh, ship. Yeah. And my USC ring snagged onto the right waist window. And I pulled myself out, inflated my life jacket, popped to the surface, and there were my two buddies hanging on to a gas tank. Mm. 
Hmm. And uh, they were screaming, help, help. Yeah. And I had the pilot's head was uh, was uh, cut too big V-shaped in his oh, forehead. Yeah. Blood was spurting out, arterial blood. And there's a life raft drifting away. I'm in full uniform with shoes. I cannot swim fast enough to get the life raft till we're finished. Hmm. I thought we're dead. But when the life raft ejected from the plane, it had a cord about 100 feet long. Oh, boy. And it just happened to be going by my face when I gave up. Yeah. And I grabbed the tail under that cord and pulled the raft back, rode to my buddies, pulled them in, uh, put a compress on the pilot's head, and then we started our 47 days adrift in the South Pacific. You, you must have just about given up hope. Then did you have food or anything? Well, there was uh, there was enough chocolate on board for uh, three men for a week. <laughs> but this chocolate is the kind that takes you. If you had a chocolate about uh, a, a half inch square, you're supposed yes. to let that dissolve in your mouth for 30 minutes mm. to get the full benefit of the food. Uh, so we went to sleep that night, and the tail the tail gunner panicked. And he got the chocolate, and all night long he nibbled on all that chocolate, enough oh. for three of us for a week. Oh, dear. Woke up in the morning, and I started to divide the chocolate, and I found there was no chocolate. Oh. And I looked at him, and he looked awful guilty. And then he also he panicked and screamed, we're going to die, we're all going to die. And I had to crack him across the face to bring him to his senses. And uh, <clears throat> so what could we do? Hmm. I couldn't get mad. Where I thought, well, we'd be picked up anyway in a day or two, so uh, we had faith that we would. And then, uh, but we weren't. And we drifted on, and we caught albatross, tried to eat the first one, but we couldn't eat it. So we used it for bait. Caught fish. We could eat the fish raw. And then uh, we drifted on for another a week and caught another bird, and we tried to eat it. We just ate a little bit of the breast. And it just the stench killed us. Mm. So then we <clears throat> used that for bait. The third, the third week we caught another albatross, and I ripped it open, and man, it tasted like a hot fudge sunny with nuts and whipped cream. <laughs> <laughs> so we were getting hungry. Wow. And uh, But now the main thing is we started to do is because I knew I had help. There's no way I could have gotten out of that trapped-in position. Yeah. And so I started to pray the first day, and then we all started to pray. Huh. And, uh, you know, a prayer like, uh, God, get us home alive from this ordeal and we'll seek you and serve you. Yes, yeah. Well, that's when people get to the end of the rope, they, like Billy Graham says, then they turn to God when there's yeah. nowhere else to turn. And so that was the daily constant prayers. Hmm. Uh, we didn't really really know too much about prayer, but yeah. it's just talking to God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then on the uh, uh, 27th day, a plane flew over and we shot flares. We thought, no, hey, we're going to be rescued. But it turned out to be an enemy plane. Oh, boy. Uh, what they call a Sally bomber, which looked like our B-25. And this is another miracle that is beyond uh, understanding. They strafed us. The three of us now were, uh, were tied up like a pretzel hmm. in a little space. 30 minutes of machine gun firing. And around our bodies, there were 48 holes. Huh. Missed by a fraction of an inch. Nobody touched by a bullet. Hmm. That is something that that is beyond comprehension. Yeah, wow. Uh, and so anyway, uh, we had to finally pretend that we were dead. And then they flew over and didn't strafe us. And the raft now is laying flat in the water. All the air is gone. We're just laying on top of the canvas and rubber. 
And then they left, we thought. And then they turned around again and came back, opened the bomb bay doors and dropped the depth charge. And the depth charge missed us by 50 feet. But it failed to explode because I believe the bombardier failed to arm the bomb properly. Hmm. And so fortunately for that, but then they uh, they assumed we were dead anyway. Yeah. Uh, They went back to their base. And now we had hope up to this time, but now we had faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We had the plan, the speed of the plan, taken off at 7 in the morning, 30 minutes to kill over the target before returning to the island. We were able to figure out how far we were from land. Hmm. And uh, that was great. So hope is one thing. Hope to me is the power of the soul to endure. But now faith gave us a lot of strength and and, uh, we knew that we would eventually drift into the islands, and we hoped that we would not drift through the islands at night. Yeah. And sure enough, we came uh, uh, to the uh, 46th day, and we saw land far off, and then a typhoon came. Oh, boy. I couldn't believe it. The waves were 25 to 45 feet high, and I, I, we got low in the raft. We put a cord around us and tied it to the cushion. We didn't tie a knot because you'd never get, get a knot untied if the raft turned over. Uh, we just looped it and laid low in the raft. We put water in the raft to give it uh, uh, ballast. Uh, and, and our thought was at that moment, a ship would sink in these waters. Thank God we're in a raft. Mm. Uh, of course, the Okinawa typhoon, 35 ships went under. And then we survived that. And the next day, uh, in high waves, we were able to get a good view of the islands. And then we found ourselves close to two or three islands that were deserted. And so we began to row and row and row, and then finally uh, around an island came this patrol boat, and they spotted us, picked us up. Uh, they had to drag us aboard the ship because we couldn't, we could kneel down and crawl. That's all we could do. And then from there we were taken to the island of Kwajalein. Well, not Kwajalein, it was Woji, a small island, Woji with an airfield, and they weighed us in at uh, 30 kilo. Now, Matt, that's about 65 pounds. So I lost 100 pounds. Oh. Two days there, and they pulled the raft aboard, and they started counting the hold. They kept looking our bodies over. Oh. They, they could not believe we were not hit by a bullet. Huh. They said, well, Dunda, you know, what yeah. happened? I said, Japanese uh, plane strafed us. He said, no, no, Japanese pilot don't do that. I said, well, they did it. Yeah. Wow. And then from there, they said they're going to go to another island, called Kwajalein. When we heard about Kwajalein, that was called Execution Island. Oh, and so all people that go there are executed. The nine Marines that were left on Macon Island by the Carlson Raiders, remember James Roosevelt was second in charge. And these nine Marines were captured, sent to the Kwajalein, and I was in the same cell that this guy was in that engraved on the wall, nine Marines marooned on Macon Island, August the 18th, 1942. And I memorized the the names. And then the guard came in, and uh, I, when he left, I said, well, what about these nine Marines? Where are they? He said, yeah. all killed by Sumerai sword, decapitation. Oh. And he said, that's what's happening to all prisoners that come to this island. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then uh, then they we were living in filth here, skinny as a rail. I couldn't stand up hardly. I couldn't walk. They had to carry us over their shoulders. And uh, then they started to interrogate us. Wow. Uh, naval officers, eight, six of them. And 
and and they they wouldn't give us any. They had cookies and soda pop, cigarettes, but they wouldn't offer us anything, hoping yeah. we'd answer their questions oh. properly. Yeah. So I went back to my cell with nothing. Yeah. And then I went over and over and over again. But we were able to, after. 47 days on that raft, we were sharper than the day we started. Wow. No, no hallucination. I'm speaking with Louis Zamberini. What an amazing story. Now, if you want to know more about uh, what happened to him in the prison camp, an amazing time, uh, you've got to read his book, Unbroken, by uh, Laura Hillebrand. Now, let's take a big jump forward because we're not going to give too much away because we want them to buy the book. Tell us about what happened. You came out, you were freed. And in 1949, something huge happened to you in your life. Well, of course, during prison camp, being tormented on a daily basis, I I had post-traumatic stress, and it kept increasing. And uh, I had nightmares every night in prison, all the way home. I got home, I looked perfectly normal to my family, but I was having these nightmares where I was strangling this this guard, Mr. Shiro Watanabe. And then I got married. And I remember waking up one night with my hand around my wife's throat, and that scared me to death. And so we didn't know what to do about it. And then I kept on drinking and drinking and chasing around. My wife decided it was time for a divorce. So she filed for a divorce. And then some guy in our apartment said, Oh, a young evangelist is coming to California next week, and I want you and your husband to go down with us. Then he started to preach to us. Boy, I left the room quickly. I didn't want him <laughs> preaching. My wife listened. She went down with him, came home, and tried to convince me I should go to this meeting because she had received Christ as her Savior. I refused over and over again, but then she said something that really gripped me, and that was, because of my conversion, I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that wow. was the best news I'd heard. Wow. And so it was on the basis of that that she was able to convince me to go down to hear Billy Graham. And he started to quote scripture, and I got mad, grabbed my wife, and pulled her on home, and I said, don't ever get me back to a place like that again. <laughs> but then she reminded me also that the only reason I'm going to stay married is because of my conversion. Yeah. And she, after about two hours of argument, she got me back, and um, Billy Graham was preaching again. And I told her, I said, we're going to leave when he says, every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> And then I started to leave, yeah. and then he said something that people, when they come to the end of their rope, they have nowhere else to turn. They always turn to God, no matter who you are. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that was us on the raft in prison camp. And then I thought, yeah, I did make, I made thousands of promises to God that if I got home alive, I would seek Him and serve Him. And I didn't even keep one promise, and He kept His promise, I'm alive. Yeah. So then I went back to the prayer room, and boy... What happened was miraculous. I got on my knees. I made a confession of my faith in Christ, and I knew immediately. I knew immediately that I was through getting drunk. I knew I was, I'd forgiven all of my Japanese guards. And actually, that was the first night that I never had a nightmare, and I haven't had one since. Huh. And so now I, the book got a five-star rating from all the critics. But one critic gave it a four-star rating because he said, I cannot understand how a man suffering from severe post-traumatic stress can get over it in a moment. Mm. Well, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that just takes a matter of a second or two. Sure. My life had changed. And that was it. And then, of course, I 
Never thought I'd go into Christian service, but I ended up going to missionary fields and traveling all over the world preaching the gospel. After I told Billy Graham, I'll never get on a platform. <laughs> <laughs> but it was God's will, and he, uh, and he really blessed me in my ministry. And then, of course, I went into a youth program. So I had, uh, according to international news, I had the number one program in the world, taking delinquents out of jail and putting them through a high Sierra uh, mountain program of pack trip skiing, mountain climbing, glacier climbing, and boating and all that. And I still get, I still get response from that. Yes. I was on a, a celebrity cruise about two years ago speaking, about 500 people in the audience. And one guy gets up with gray hair and says, Oh, Mr. Zamperini, I was in your camp when I was 14. Huh. I received Christ as my savior and it revolutionized my life. Now I'm a businessman. Thank you, thank you. And then another guy got up, didn't even know him, and said, I was in your camp when I was 16, and I accepted Christ, and it changed my whole life. And my son is standing there just drooling, thrilled to death. (laughs) And I still see the results of the old days. That's wonderful. Well, we've got about a minute left. When people read your book, Unbroken, what do you want them to take away from it? Well, I think that the, the main thing I want them to take away from the book is uh, salvation. Uh, we are living in critical times all over the world, and uh, no, nobody knows how long we're going to be uh, able to uh, to remain as a society. We've had so many wars that uh, the, the only uh, safe haven is to uh, put your trust in Jesus Christ and uh, and serve Him. And that, that's probably the best recommendation I can give. Oh, that's wonderful. And looking back on your life... Um, it's a really interesting question. If you'd have known Christ in those days, would you have shared that with uh, Hitler? I, don't, I would share it with anybody. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been all over the world uh, uh, preaching the gospel or giving my testimony, and there, there's nobody anywhere that I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't tell about the greatest, the greatest uh, event ever in the history of the world, and that is uh, to, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the secret to life. Louis Amberini, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News Service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station.